0: So, as you can see on the screen, uh, I'm going to be starting another series. I'm, I'm very obsessed with doing series. And so you'll notice that every time I come and preach, most of the time it won't be just a single sermon. Uh, it'll be multiple-part sermon because I usually have too much to say and I talk a lot. So because of that, uh, I have to split up my sermons into many parts. And I'm a little worried that today might go a little long. Bear with me. I will do my best to go through this. And um, hopefully it'll be a blessing for all of you as it's been a blessing to me. Um, so this will be a new, uh, either three or four part series, maybe five, I'm still thinking about it. Uh, but for over the next few times I've decided to speak, we're going to be talking about a particular book in the Bible that uh, the story is very familiar, but the book itself uh, is not really talked about too often. And if you look at the title, you may have guessed, or based on the scripture reading, you may have uh, assumed that the lesson or the study or the, the sermon today is going to be on the book of Jonah. How many of you guys know, or the show of hands, know like the story of Jonah? Okay. okay. Uh, so, what are like the two main things about the story of Jonah that we all think about when we think of Jonah? Okay, the, the big fish in the Bible, the big fish and Jonah, right? That's like the story. Uh, the, the funny thing is that there's only two verses in the entire book of Jonah. But that's what we think about. And most of you guys probably have, are familiar with the story of Jonah because of like veggie tales or maybe some kind of you know show or maybe a children's book. Uh, but the reality is, is the book of Jonah is a very interesting book because there's so much more uh, than just the veggie tale depiction of the book of Jonah. And that's what I want to talk about in this series. This series is going to be more of like a kind of an in-depth Bible study type sermon series. And so it may sound like a lecture, and if it sounds like a lecture, I am so sorry. Uh, But I hope you guys can uh, get something out of uh, this study on the book of Jonah. Uh, So I've actually been reading a book as well. I read a book called The Prodigal Prophet by Timothy Keller. If you're unfamiliar with that, it's a great read. I totally recommend it. But that's where uh, this sermon will be based off of, plus other resources that I've been studying as well. But if you've ever studied the book of Jonah, like actually taken time to sit and read through each of the chapters, it's only four chapters, uh, but if you ever have studied this book, uh, there are so many questions and interesting things that come to mind when you think about it, right? There are many themes, there's many lessons uh, that can be taken from the story. And for me personally, it made me wonder if uh, is this really just a story? Is this a feel-good story? Or is it really a story about race and nationalism because of Jonah's uh, concern for his nation's military security, then a city of spiritually lost people? Or is this a story about God's call to having a mission, since Jonah first flees from that calling and then later goes, but then he regrets it? Or is this a story about the struggle that believers have in obeying and trusting in God. And I think the answer is yes to all of this, and there's so much more. And I pray that as we journey together in this study of the book of Jonah, in this series of the book of Jonah, I pray that we can all find something of value and worth, something that fuels each of our spiritual journeys. And in order for make, uh, to make sense of this entire thing, um, I want to share a lot of background. And as we jump into the sermon, you'll notice we'll only talk about three verses, but hopefully that'll lay the foundation as we go through each of these uh, series um, to help give better understanding. So if we look at the book of Jonah, there's four chapters, and it can be easily split into two parts, chapters one and two, and then chapters three and four. Okay? In chapters one and two, we see that Jonah was given a command by God, but he fails to obey it. And then in three and four, we see that Jonah is once again, given the command a second time, and this time he actually does it. He pulls through and does that, but it's really crazy because these two accounts, these two scenes that we see, are practically parallel, okay? So we look here, scene one, Jonah and the pagans and the sea, uh, and then scene two is Jonah, the pagans, and the city of Nineveh, right? And if you look here, Jonah 1.1 1, 1, and Jonah 3.1 we'll talk about how God's word comes to Jonah. And then as you see, I'm not going to go through each and every one of these, but you can see here, the messages conveyed to Jonah, the response of Jonah. Um, and then we see the word of warning in, in Jonah 1.4, 3.4, 4, the response of the pagans, the response of the pagan leaders, uh, and then, oh, actually, that's not supposed to be that. Uh, That last one is supposed to be how the pagans' response was ultimately better than Jonah's response, right? And if you're wondering what FF means, it means folios following. So it means the verse that come after verse uh, 7 as well. Um, And then the last part, uh, we see in each of the scenes how God taught grace to Jonah through a fish in scene 1. And then how in scene 2, God taught grace to Jonah through the plant. So this is absolutely crazy, and I think if we look at the book of Jonah, and we understand the book of Jonah in this light, then we see uh, that it's more than just a story. Right? There's one misconception that this story always gets, and I want to clear that up right now. Uh, maybe it's crossed your mind as you um, read this book and try to understand it, uh, because we, as we know, uh, the book of Jonah is known for that big fish right? that swallows Jonah. And for some people, it's like, dude, is that really real? Like, how can I truly believe that Jonah was actually swallowed by a big fish? But for me personally, if I can believe that God exists, if I can believe that Jesus Christ was... Was buried, or he died. He was buried and crucified, buried, and then he rose again. If I can believe that, which I think is a far greater miracle than being swallowed by a fish, then for me there's particularly nothing difficult about believing the fact that this could have actually happened. Right, and so I hopefully uh, that's the same thing for you. And besides that, I do believe that whether you take this book, whether you think my uh, my observation is convincing or not. Um, I do believe that this book has a lesson that can be learned uh, that is very true. It's precise and clear to us to the present day. And so I hope we don't get distracted too much about things like the big fish uh, or anything of that nature. Like I said, it's only two verses in the entire book. Um, anything, another thing that I want to point out about the book of Jonah, and when you look at the structure of it, when you look at both of these scenes, the first part and the second part of Jonah, it clearly shows. That Jonah is a committed religious believer, and he regards and relates to people who are both racially and religiously different than him. Okay, so you see, the book of Jonah it clearly shows us insight. Um, yeah, it shows us insights about God's love for societies and even people that are beyond the community of believers. See, we see also in the book of Jonah throughout the entire thing God's distaste towards toxic nationalism, and disrespect for other races. And it also shows about how to be in mission in the world despite the subtle and unavoidable powers of idolatry that we struggle with in our lives and our hearts. And I think if we pay attention to the details of the book of Jonah, more than a story about a guy that gets swallowed by a big fish and goes to a city, we can become better bridge builders, we can become better peacemakers, and agents of reconciliation in our world today. And I strongly believe that. And hopefully, by the end um, of this series, that you see that it's not just like a big Bible study on the book of Jonah, but rather, you will understand and see that uh, a better side of God's mercy and grace to people. And with that kind of laid out for you, we can understand, like I said, the lessons that I've been talking about, we can pull out in terms of societal factors and social relationships. It's so important that we understand that the book of Jonah's main teaching point is not necessarily sociological, but it is actually theological. And hopefully by the end, you will see and understand why uh, I I make this claim that the book of Jonah is not about our social relationships, but actually it's more of a theological uh, lesson that we can take. You see, we clearly see that Jonah, he wants a God that is catered and designed to his imagination and his liking. Right? For example, he wants a God that can destroy and kill all the bad people right? in our story. He wants the Ninevites to be completely eradicated. But then he wants a God that will bless him and his people for being good. And we know this because when the real God shows up, the front story of Jonah's uh, life, right? When is when confronted, not with the counterfeit God that he imagined God to be, but with the actual God keeps showing up, Jonah is completely angry, right? The actual book of Jonah, not the VeggieTale story of Jonah, ends on a very sour note. It ends in a question, right? Because Jonah is angry and displeased with God. Okay? You see, Jonah, this firm, dedicated, committed religious leader, not come to terms with this mysterious god of mercy and his ideal of justice. We see Jonah questioning God, and maybe we have this question today as well. We may ask ourselves just as Jonah asks, how can God be so merciful and forgiving to people who have done such violence and evil? How in the world can God be both merciful and just? Now, to give you a forewarning, that question is never really answered in the book of Jonah. And it kind of, like I said, ends on an odd note of a question. Uh, but if we look at the entirety of the Bible, and I'm all about looking at the Bible as a narrative, and a complete narrative. When we look at the entire Bible, we see that the book of Jonah simply points forward to how God saves the world through what one calls, uh, to the one who calls himself the ultimate Jonah, or the person that is greater than Jonah, so that he could be both just and the justifier of those who believe. And I think when we come uh, to a full grasp of this gospel message, that we can become changed by the Spirit from the inside and out and become Christ like women and men. So, and the last thing I kind of want to say before I kind of jump into our reading um, so you can kind of see where I'm trying to take this series. Uh, and obviously, the title of my sermon, The Prodigal Prophet. Uh, There's a reason why I titled this after the author's uh, book, and I think it's a brilliant way to put it. There's an interesting connection between Jonah's story, or the first half of Jonah, and the prodigal son uh, parable that Jesus gives in Luke 15, right? There's a connection between the first half of Jonah with uh, the prodigal son uh, who runs away from the father, And then in the second half of the book, Jonah is like that older brother that stays with the father, that obeys the father, but then ultimately gets angry when the father shows grace to the repentant sinner, which was the younger brother. So if you see that connection there, I think it's a beautiful uh, connection. And it's interesting because the same way that the parable of the prodigal son, we usually end that parable, and I love talking about the parable because it's my favorite, but we never talk about the actual ending of that parable. Because if you look at the ending of the parable, it ends with a question. Right? From the father to the son, the older son, just like the book of Jonah ends with a question from God to the prophet, who also has uh, been angry. Right? And I think maybe, just maybe, to see this parallel, maybe Jesus saw this story as well. And maybe he had the book of Jonah in mind as he was sharing that parable. Now with all of that kind of out of the way, uh, which in itself I could just turn into a sermon, which I won't, I want to jump into the message for today. And we're going to start with Jonah chapter 1, uh, verse 1 and 3. And let's just read through it once more. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, the very first thing that we can notice in this book, and the first thing hopefully you guys can notice as well, uh, it starts with the word of the Lord came, right, to Jonah. If you look at the trend of other biblical prophets, if you look at, you know, if you turn your Bibles to Jonah and you look at the book right afterwards, uh, Jonah is a really small book, so... Um, It's right before Micah. Micah is also kind of a small book. But if you look at Micah, it starts the same way. The word of the Lord that came to Micah, right? So if you look at all the other prophets, most of the prophetic messages that God gives to his prophets start in a very similar tone, Right? Prophets are usually getting a calling. They are messengers of God with a message that God has given them to go and tell uh, to people. So this is very normal. So if you were listening to the story of Jonah, if you were hearing this story, this would be absolutely fine. Right? To go and convey a message, uh, especially in terms of crisis. Right? Most prophets are sharing when things are not well. But when you read verse 2, there should automatically be red flags going up everywhere. Because anyone reading this would have known that this message is completely different than everything else. Because you see, God is calling Jonah to go to that great city of Nunavut. Right? And this is crazy because God is calling for one, a Hebrew prophet, to leave his home of Israel to go to a Gentile city. That should automatically raise red flags for you. Because up until this point, God sent people, prophets, to his own people. Right? Yes, there were a few prophets like Jeremiah, like Isaiah and Amos, who address um, messages to their neighboring pagan cities. Right? But they're all very brief. And none of them actually required the prophet to leave the city and go into that other city. So clearly, this mission that God was giving Jonah would have been something that's completely unheard of at that time. But what makes this even more crazy is that Nineveh, which is the capital of the Assyrian Empire, was the destination that God wanted Jonah to preach this message to. Now if you don't know much about Assyria, this is when it starts sounding like a lecture. Okay? It's one of the most cruelest and violent empires of ancient times. And let me explain. It was very typical for these Assyrian kings to uh, record and show their like, military victories. And so it was kind of like a bragging right for them to show like, oh look what I did, look what I did. So they would record these all on like these plaques and it was kind of like their resume, right? Like, oh look what I've done. Okay? Uh, there was one emperor, Emperor the uh, III, he was known for talking about especially the torture that he would inflict on the countries that they would attack. Right? Um, he would write on these large stone panels about dismembering and decapitating people, It's just very evil. Okay? After capturing their enemies, this is what they would do. They, the Assyrians would typically cut off all their limbs. They would cut off their legs and cut off one of their arms, and then they would leave one arm on the person while they were still alive, and they would mock them by shaking their hands, right? This is, this is the kind of image uh, um, that, well, anyways, yeah. So they would also, what they would do, the Assyrian people would take the, the families of, uh, and friends of loved ones and take the heads and cut off their heads and put them on poles and then have the families parade around the city with their families, head, decapitated head on top of a pole. This is what the Assyrians would do to their neighboring countries. Okay? They would pull out, when they would catch prisoners, they would pull out their tongues and then stretch their bodies with ropes so that they could peel their skin alive and then take those peels and then stick them on the walls of the city. Right? This is the kind of, of torture and kind of cruelty that the syrian empire would commit right they would take children and then burn them alive like this is by far like the most disgusting terrible kind of empire you could ever imagine and this is what they would brag about and write on their little tablets right? you see a little bit of history on the syrian nation the syrian nation began to constantly pressure the israelites um, and the kingdom of Israel During the reign of King Jehu okay, Who reigned from 842 to 815 BC And they continued to threaten the country For many many years right? And then constantly and eventually Through the lifetime of our prophet Jonah right? So Jonah lived through it during this time And 722 BC much later The empire of Assyria eventually evaded And destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel And their capital of Samaria right? So you know, with all of this painted in your mind You, you see that this is absolutely insane. Because this is the very nation that God is calling Jonah, a Hebrew prophet, to go and reach out to. Right? This should be like, mind blowing. Right? That's so crazy. This nation that caused so much pain and suffering to many different kinds of people. And Jonah saw and heard of these firsthand. God is calling him now to go to this nation. Now, when God tells a prophet to go and proclaim a message of rebuke for wickedness, God typically sends that message as a warning, meaning that there is always that chance of judgment being averted. And ancient readers at that time would have known that very well. Especially Jonah, who was a prophet, Uh, knew that very well because we see at the end if you're very curious you can look at jonah chapter three and chapter four and kind of see his response to god Um, pretty much he just straight up says god i knew you were going to save these people why would you send me here in the first place if you're going to do that okay so if you're curious you can go uh, take a peek at that but if we take a step back clearly this is such a wild thing that god would ask jonah to do why in the world would god want to give a chance to the entire empire of people who did these kind of horrid things their neighbors why would God want to show mercy to a group of people like this now for me I think what makes this even more crazy is who exactly God is trying to send. right now if we simply look at the book of Jonah we don't really know much about who he is it doesn't really say it doesn't give really a lengthy introduction of Jonah but the reason why is because he was already known in his community right and because he was already known there was no need to introduce Jonah at all now A little bit of Hebrew. Jonah, okay, uh, is actually translated into Hebrew as dove, okay? And then Amittai, which is his father, is actually translated to faithfulness, right? That's what their names mean. This is very interesting. This should, you know, when when we look at and think about the entire story of what Jonah does and how he goes about on this, this calling that God has given him. He was Jonah, the son of Amittai, but he was the dove, right? the son of faithfulness. And this should be kind of ironic. It's kind of a comedy, if you, if you may say, that the book of Jonah presents this kind of ironic kind of story uh, that's happening uh, with this prophet of God. If we look at 2 Kings 14.25, it says that Jonah ministered during the reign of Israel Israel's king, um, King Jeroboam II, right? And if you know anything about the kings of the Old Testament, you know that King Jeroboam was not a good king, right? Um, He was not a good king. He was a terrible king. um, And if you do a little bit of a further study um, of this person, you'll know that Jonah was very different in why he supported uh, this king. Other prophets like Amos and Hosea, they criticized the, the kingdom and, and the administration because of things like social injustice towards their own kind and unfaithfulness. Uh, and if you know, like I always talk about Amos and how you're standing up for social injustice and how God is a God that cares about the rights of people. But Jonah was the opposite. Jonah was actually a supporter of Jeroboam, King Jeroboam II's aggressive military policies. He was all about wanting to extend the power of Israel and their influence. So if anyone saw his name, any biblical scholar saw his name, they would have automatically known that Jonah was this intensely patriotic nationalist. This guy, all he cared about was his country. And to me, that's what makes this story even more interesting. Because now God is sending a man who is in love with his country, to the very people, to the very nation that he absolutely hates, right? He fears and he hates this country of Assyria, right? Which is completely understandable, right? For someone that has so much love for his country, God is taking that man and sending him to a country where he absolutely cannot bear. Now, we see Jonah uh, doing something completely comical, right? Uh, he He does arise, right? The Bible says that God commanded him to arise. He arose but he went in the opposite direction from Joppa to Tarshish. Now it's interesting because Tarshish is known as like the end of the world, right? That was their last, like in the biblical times, that's what they knew as kind of the last place before they went out into the ocean into the middle of nowhere, right? So it's crazy because God calls him to go east to Nineveh, but then he goes west, right? Instead of traveling over land, he decides to buy a ticket and travel overseas, okay? Instead of going to the big city, he goes to the place known as the end of the world, right? Isn't that comical? I think Jonah's a funny guy, right? I think he's a funny guy. If we look later in the book, we find out exactly why Jonah decided to refuse the calling that God had for him. But for now, we're going to simply look at, um, at what, where we are right now in the story. And we can imagine that Jonah probably saw the mission that God had called him to as impractical. Okay? Or maybe even theologically, he thought maybe it was incorrect. Think about it. The size of the city, a city with that reputation, what are the chances, right? On a theological level, it doesn't make sense to Jonah. Because you see, a few years back, the prophet Nahum talks about Nineveh, and he went to preach, and he talked about the impeding destruction of the city, right? So Jonah's probably thinking, like, step in his shoes with me. If Jonah goes to the city of Nineveh, and let's just say he's, you know, maybe successful, as we know in the story, he is, Right? That if he was successful, then what kind of reputation does that leave God, right? So you can, you can see the kind of, kind of uh, struggle that he is having, theologically thinking about what, what does this look like, right? Does Nam look like a, a real prophet or does he look like a false prophet now? If Nam said that the city was going to be destroyed and then they don't get destroyed, then what's going to happen, right? So hopefully you can see this struggle and maybe see the reasoning and why Jonah would want to refuse the calling that God had for him. Now with Jonah's response to God, we can clearly see that not only did uh, he have a problem with the mission that God gave, but Jonah clearly had a problem with God himself. Right? He doubted the goodness, the wisdom, and the justice of God. And I think a lot of the times, we as Christians fall into the same shoes as Jonah. When we receive news of losing our job, or maybe of a failed relationship, or you know, getting a bad grade in school, or whatever it may be, sometimes we think, man, does God really care about my well-being? Does God really care that I do well? And we question God, okay? We also doubt His goodness, His wisdom, and His justice. And the sad reality of our human nature is this. We end up thinking that, hey, it's not God that knows what's best for me. I know what's best for me. Let me take care of it myself. And we end up thinking that, you know, I'm going to take control of my life and no longer have God take control of mine. It's a sad reality because we end up doubting the character of God. And we doubt that He really cares for us. So we see no. So when we don't see any good reason for whatever God says or does, we simply assume that God doesn't know what's best for us. And I think that's a sad reality that Jonah ran into, but I think we also run into as Christians today. Now, in our story from the very start, we see that Jonah is running away from God. But when we look at the book of Jonah in its entirety, we find that there are two different strategies that Jonah uses in escaping God. And I think Paul very brilliantly outlines this message in Romans, okay? So Romans chapter one, verse three, uh, if you wanna just write this down, but Paul outlines this strategy for escaping God. You see, Paul talks simply, or he starts by talking about uh, those that reject God and have been filled with every kind of wickedness and live their life in sin, evil, greed, etc. Right? Romans one twenty nine. If you look at that, that's what Paul's talking about. But then in chapter two, he flips the story and he says, "Well, then there are those that seek God, to do the good uh, of the Bible, and follow and want to be you know God-driven people." Romans 2.17-18 talk about how these people rely on the law and they boast and they know. His will, and they approve of what is superior because they are instructed by the law, right? This is kind of the message here. Then Paul takes a look at both of them, okay? Both pagan, immoral Gentiles, and then Bible-believing, moral Jews. And he concludes in chapter 3, he says, There is no one righteous, not even one, and all have turned away. A group that diligently follows God's laws, and a group that ignores it altogether. But Paul says that all have turned away. Obviously, by becoming immoral and righteous or irreligious, we can run from God, very clearly. But Paul is trying to say, you can also become very religious and moral and still run away from God. I think the best example of this interesting phenomenon that Paul talks about is the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. The younger brother, what does he do? He escapes and he runs away from the father, living a life of evil sin, spending it on his uh, desires, no, thinking that what he is doing is best for him. But the older father, uh, the older son, what does he do? He stays. He's obedient. He stays home with the father and does whatever the father says. But at the moment when the father rewards the younger son in his return, what happens to the older son? He completely loses it, right? He's just like, are you kidding me? Dad, why would you do that? And it becomes obvious that the older son did not really love his father. You see, the older son was not obeying his father out of love, but as a way of putting his father in his debt, in his control. Both sons didn't trust their father's love. It's very clear. Both were looking for a way of escape. One did so by following his father's rules, while the other simply disobeyed all of them. This is a very interesting thing that I believe that we as Christians also fail to recognize. We think that simply if we are religious if we are observant to the rules, if we just be good, follow all the rules, uh, that in essence, we have paid our dues. We have done our part and now God owes us. This is the kind of mentality that some of us fall into. And our Christian life becomes not one of love with the Father, but of selfish motives and intentions. So at the beginning of my message today, I kind of shared with you how Jonah takes uh, turns kind of acting like the younger son, but also the older son. In the first two chapters, like I said, Jonah runs off. Okay? He's disobedient. He runs off from God. But ultimately, he comes back to God and he seeks for his grace. And then in the last two chapters, we see the same Jonah not obeying God. But in both instances, we see that Jonah is not doing this because, yes, I want to follow God. But he is doing this trying to get control over this agenda that's going on. Jonah is clearly unhappy with God. When he, when he finds out that God accepts the repentance of the Ninevites, just like the older son in the parable, right? Jonah is filled with self-righteous anger at God's gracious and mercy to sinners. This is like, I think this is so like bizarre, right? Jonah had, uh, I'll talk about it a little bit more in a future sermon. But Jonah's sermon in Hebrew was literally like five Hebrew words. It was the most successful sermon of all time. If I could preach a five-word sermon and all of your lives were transformed, then you know, I, could, I could go church to church and like, change the world, right? Jonah goes and gives a five-word sermon, and the whole city repents. Even the cows repent. That's what they say, right? The whole city turned their, their back from their evil ways and believed in God. But Jonah here, even though he went and followed through with this, he is angry and displeased with what God is doing. And this is the problem that Jonah is facing. And this is the mystery of God's mercy. It's clearly a theological problem that Jonah is suffering. But I also believe it's a hard problem too. Unless Jonah can see his own sin, unless Jonah can see himself too for for his need in living in God's mercy, Jonah will truly never understand how God can be merciful to evil people and still be just and faithful. And you know, it's interesting because no matter how many times Jonah runs away. God always seems to be a step ahead. Right? And I think that's pretty relevant to us today too, amen? Right? Just as we think that we're a step ahead of God and we're running away thinking we're doing our own thing, the funny thing is, or even if it's not funny, the, real, the reality is that God is always one step ahead. Right? And just as Jonah uses different strategies in his escape from God, God also uses his strategies too. And he continues to show us mercy in ways that we may never understand or even deserve. I think in this introduction, in this beginning of the book of Jonah, as we jump in, hopefully next week will be, or the next time I speak, it'll be more uh, something that you can take away. But as I've laid kind of the foundation of how crazy and how, um, how much of a comedy this book is, right? we see that God shows mercy in ways that we may not expect and understand. And I think with that, I think as we study about this prodigal prophet, that we can understand better God's mercy and grace. That we can understand the story more than just a fish, a big fish and and a man named Jonah. But to see the lessons, the theological lessons that we can understand about God uh, in this lesson of the prodigal.